It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, nine a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is a show where we seek to explore the mysteries of the universe. I don't think there's anything more mysterious than the universe itself. You look up at the stars and you wonder what's out there, what's beyond what we can see. Well, uh, I have really enjoyed some of the folks that we've gotten to talk to on this subject over the last three years, but I don't know that there's anybody that is more accomplished accomplished than my next guest. You could love him, you can hate him, but you can't say he doesn't know what he's talking about. The man is a theoretical cosmologist. He is an award-winning science communicator. He is a NASA advisor, a U.S. cultural ambassador, a globally recognized leader in the intersection of art and science. He's a research professor, an author of multiple books, including the forthcoming book, Rescuing Science, Restoring Trust in an Age of Doubt. Very pleased to welcome to the program, gentlemen, I've become a a great admirer of, Dr. Paul Sutter. Dr. Sutter, thanks for joining me on the radio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, you can hate me. I just hope nobody does. (laughs) You and me both. With this audience, (laughs) it's tough, though. I'm telling you. Uh, Dr. Sutter, what what made you want to be a spaceman? You're involved in space from about every possible perspective, other than, I guess, regularly cruising around in a space shuttle somewhere. What made you want to do this? What inspired your interest in this? Yeah, and the only thing that's stopping me about that is I can't afford a ticket. Yeah, you, you, and both. you and me both. You and me both. Maybe we can uh, shuttle pool or something. Exactly. Can we can we take a hot seat? Do we get to share? <laughs> like, um, I've I've ever since uh, I was a little kid, I've loved space. I loved astronomy. I love science. I love reading. I love learning. Um, just all the usual nerdy things and. Uh, actually, it wasn't until college, however, the middle of college, that I realized that I could actually have a career in this. I went to college initially as a major in computer science because, you know, I'm still a nerd. Um, and I loved all these astronomy topics and, and physics and cosmology. And I never realized that that kind of job could be for me, that I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't going to the right schools. I wasn't getting the right education. I didn't have the right background. Um And then my third year of college, I took an elective astronomy course because I had always held this love for it. And two weeks in, the professor pulled me aside and said, you know, you're actually kind of good at this. And it can be a job. 
totally broke my brain. I did not realize <laughs> it was possible. And uh, within a week, I switched majors to physics, and I never looked back. I, I think that's uh, that's terrific. It reminds me of my uh, m- my realization when I learned that you could actually be on the radio as a job. Very similar. Um, <laughs> let's get the most important question, maybe the most difficult question, out of the way, and it'll allow, I guess, our listeners to judge whether you're a part of the uh, government cover-up or you're a part of the solution here. Are aliens visiting this planet on a regular basis? <laughs> if I am a part of the government cover-up, I wish I could get paid more. Like, there seems to be no clear correlation between being part of the conspiracy and having a lavish lifestyle. Uh, to me, there is no evidence whatsoever that uh, aliens have visited the Earth. So uh, obviously, uh, Congress has looked into this. We've seen uh, we've seen these these tic tac videos. We've seen uh, Navy pilots chasing some objects that they simply just can't explain. If these objects aren't aliens, serious. This is a serious question. If these objects aren't aliens, what do you think they are? I'm going to say three words, and. People believe these three words are a capitulation, but actually they're a celebration. The the key, the three words are "I don't know." Hmm. Yeah, you and, and me it's both. okay. Yeah, yeah, it's okay to say I don't know. And the other side of that coin is, if you claim that these are images of alien spacecraft, then you are claiming to know what they are. And when you make a statement that say, I know what this is, then you must back it up by Mm -hmm. Mm evidence. And you need multiple lines of evidence. The bar for convincing scientists is very much higher than it is for non-scientists. This is how we operate. This is how we work together to, to discover the inner workings of nature is by setting a very, very high bar for the standards of evidence. And it's okay in science. In fact, it is encouraged to say, I don't know, because that means there is an opportunity to learn more about the universe. I do not believe that uh, aliens have visited. There has not been any strong evidence to me that has convinced me that aliens have visited us. When I see those videos, when I see the UAP reports and all that, I say, huh, that's kind of weird. I don't know what that is. Obviously, on Monday, there was a lot of attention paid to the latest lunar mission. There was a lot of optimism about this. This was something that was billed as uh, kind of a um, a merger of private sector space exploration with government sponsored space exploration. Doesn't it did not go according to plan, needless to say. How disappointed are you about what happened with the lunar mission this week? The Peregrine? Oh, yeah, I'm I'm heartbroken. And the especially for the, the team, the people that have poured years, uh, not just the money, but the human investment into this. Uh, and it carries all, every mission into space carries along with it, you know, hope and work and sweat and anticipation for the future. And when things go wrong, it is hard. It is really hard. But that is the ultimate lesson of space, that space is hard. Operating in space is the most unfamiliar environment we could possibly operate in as humans. 
And we have to learn a lot if we want to be a successful Mm. interplanetary or interstellar species. We have to do it the hard way because the hard way is the only way. Nature does not allow cheaters in this universe. And so we're going to make mistakes. We're going to have uh, colossal failures and, and really in science and engineering in this kind of environment, the only time you truly fail is when you don't learn something. And I guarantee the company behind the, the lunar lander, they've already learned a lot about the mistakes they've made. Hopefully they learn a lot more. And the second shot makes it all worth it. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. People are just tuning in. We're talking with uh, Dr. Paul Sutter. He's an astrophysicist, a science educator, and a cultural ambassador. You can check out his website at pmsutter.com. That's S-U-T-T-E-R.com. Also written a few books, which we'll talk about in just a moment. With what happened with the lunar mission this week, Dr. Sutter, do you think that's an indication that the Artemis mission, which was going to be, uh, you know, put into motion, I think next year, is not going to happen anytime soon. (sighs) Artemis is such a tricky subject because it's about much more than the machine. It's about the politics. It's about NASA funding. It's about ensuring jobs programs. It's about uh, maintaining ways of thinking. It's, it's about engineering practices that are quickly becoming outdated. I've never been too bullish on the Artemis project. I believe, and this is coming from my own experiences, observing that the delays with the James Webb Space Telescope, which was something like Mm. 10 years and $5 billion uh, over budget. Um, The Artemis Project, I unfortunately, I think the Artemis Project is going to keep going. There's going to be continued funding for it, not enough funding to actually get it going anytime soon. And I think it will be delayed and delayed and delayed. And I actually suspect that there are opportunities here for private companies like SpaceX uh, to simply eclipse it. The um, you know, you talk about Artemis and the politics behind the technology. I think a lot of folks in our audience remember uh, President Kennedy's uh, speech back in 1962 uh, saying that the resources of the country should be dedicated to returning him, putting a man on the moon and returning him back before this decade is out. And even though he didn't live to see it, that timeline did come to fruition. And it seemed like between 1969 and 1973, we're going to the moon all the time. We haven't been back since 1973. The last three or four presidents have all said, let's go back to the moon. Not one of them has been able to do it. Why were we able to get to the moon so easily in the late 60s, early 70s? And it's been 50 years since we've been back. Why has it taken so long for us to get back to the moon? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are a, a few reasons. One reason is money. At the height of the Apollo era, NASA was taking something like 4% of the entire federal budget. And almost all the money that NASA was getting was going into the, the, the crewed space program, the Apollo program. And so we're spending a significant fraction of all of our wealth as a nation on getting to the moon. Nowadays, NASA is something like 0.5% of the federal budget, and then the money that that NASA is getting is spread out amongst many, many different projects, not just crewed missions to the moon. And much of NASA's own budget is not even up to NASA. It's it's directed by Congress, mm. line item by line item. They say, okay, NASA, you're going to spend this much money on this program, and then this much money on this program, and then this much money on this program, and this much money on the Artemis project. And then NASA says, well, that's not enough money to achieve the goals of the Artemis project. And then Congress responds with, well, you know, I don't know, too bad. You're smart or something. Figure it out. So one is just raw money. Like we we are not spending the money that we were 50 or 70 years ago. The other is that we are in a much different culture uh, and society when it comes to acceptable levels of risk in the space program. Apollo 1, three astronauts died in a horrible accident, and we kept going. Mm -hmm. Today, that would be inexcusable. Uh The entire program would be shut down. We have a much lower tolerance for loss of life in space programs and even loss of vehicles. Like uh, the private companies are able to get away with a lot more losses, a lot more explosions on the launch pad, a lot more mishaps in orbit. The way NASA operates now is much more risk averse than it was 70 years ago because there is Congress sitting over their shoulder. And if imagine if the Artemis test flight from last year, if it blew up on the launch pad, we would not be discussing the future of Artemis at all today. All right. So let's talk about your book, Rescuing Science, Restoring Trust in an Age of Doubt. Let's talk about the doubt. We, we've had a lot of doubters call into the show. I've interviewed many of them as guests. We've had uh, people who uh, think that the world is flat and uh, every other variety of doubt to anything that there's consensus among scientists about from uh, climate change to, you know, um, really just at, just about everything, anything and everything. I'm not going to uh, leave anybody out by just listing a few things why is this an age of doubt why is there so much doubt about science these days yeah this is such a complex issue we do see uh, trust in science is overall very high. The latest Pew Research poll says that uh, 57% of all Americans believe that scientists have the best interest in the nation at heart. And, and that is overall a good thing for our nation to have science and scientists and scientific research. Uh, that's down though, from a high of almost 80% just a few years ago, right before the pandemic. We are seeing this slow decline in the overall trust that Americans have in science and scientists. And I believe that this erosion of trust has several factors behind it. Uh, 
And one of those factors is the way that scientists themselves approach the public. I believe that scientists are not communicating directly with the public enough. They are not making their research accessible and understandable. I believe that some scientists are getting caught up in um, in corruption, in fraud. Mm. I believe they are publishing too much and too often, and they're, we're getting sloppy, and we're not self-correcting and checking ourselves often enough, and that some scientists are getting duped, uh, getting paid off, getting bought off, getting um, getting encouraged to support a certain political positions, even when it extends beyond the bounds of what their evidence says. Uh, we have examples of all of this. And I believe in science. I believe in the power and vitality of the scientific method to illuminate the world around us and as a tool, as an aid for answering pressing social questions and civilization-wide questions. And yet this power and vitality and usefulness doesn't get communicated to the public nearly enough. And so the public, many members of the public, will enjoy science, like learning about science, like hearing about new results. But when science touches on something that they personally believe in or have a stake in, then it becomes much harder to navigate. And that's where the erosion of trust uh, begins. And I believe that scientists aren't doing a good enough job in addressing that and in bridging that gap. Talking with Dr. Uh, Paul Sutter. So now that we know the problem, now that we know the factors that have led to this age of doubt, which I think you've uh, illustrated very very comprehensively, how do we restore trust? How do we rescue science? Yeah, I think it's up to the scientists. We can't put it on the public to build the bridges back to science that that were once there, um, because that's unfair. (laughs) It's not their fault. Um, I believe it's the fault of scientists for not handling their relationship with the public very well. And so uh, this book is a call to scientists, to engineers, to STEM majors, to fans of science, to start sharing more, to start communicating more, to start reaching out to the public, not with the expectation of changing minds or convincing people or mocking uh, people who don't believe uh, various aspects of scientific research. It's about talking. It's about sharing. It's about exposing our love and joy and curiosity and wonder, you know, the fundamental human emotions that power scientists every day. It is these emotions that everybody can share in. We can all share in the delight and joy of scientific discovery. I, you know, I don't want to uh, get you to weigh in on anything that's a, a, a politically volatile issue because the work that you do is uh, nonpartisan and I think whatever, whatever people's political party, they should enjoy it. But um, just this week, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who very famously during the pandemic said that he was science, he basically basically told congressional lawmakers that the guidelines that he told the public about to keep six feet of separation ostensibly to limit the spread of covid sort of just appeared without scientific input without commenting necessarily on Fauci specifically. Is that the kind of thing that scientists and respected scientists are doing that is undermining trust in science? 
Yeah, I actually uh, believe, like, uh, Anthony Fauci, he played a very important role in the pandemic. Uh, he was in a, a leadership position within our government. Uh, it was his role to advise um, our, our political leaders. Ultimately, though, I believe the best role of scientists is as an illuminator of the evidence. And it's our job as scientists to communicate what we find in scientific research to the public, making it understandable to the general public, to policymakers, to political leaders, so that we can come to a consensus decision together. That is a very vital, important role, especially when we have things like global pandemics mm -hmm. that are killing all of our grandparents and we're freaking out justifiably trying to figure out how do we stop this thing? And then we turn to the experts in our communities saying, well, what do we do? And science as an institution actually has a very hard time dealing with rapid fire, real time crisis situations because science by its very nature, is slow and deliberate and argumentative. And we come to different conclusions at different times, and we weigh the evidence, and we have slim pieces of, of research here and there that poke and prod at a problem. Then over time, through journal articles and conferences and a, a whole lot of emails, we come to an understanding of some situation in nature. And so the public, I believe, isn't used to that side of science. We like to see scientists as authoritative because what we say is supposed to be based on the evidence. But when we're gathering that evidence in real time and we're trying to understand a very complex, evolving situation like a virus that is spreading like wildfire, that is a very hard position for science to mm -hmm. be in. And so I think the best thing to do is to be upfront about it, to say those words that I said at the right. beginning of the episode of, of this interview, to say, I don't know, to say, oh, hey, scientists, what do we do about this? It's okay for a scientist to say, I don't know. Let me go back to my research community. Let's talk amongst our colleagues. We're going to give some advice. We're going to give some guidance. It's going to be based on the evidence. But, hey, that evidence is going to change. We're going to have to update as things go because the more we learn, the more we might change our minds. We might shift direction. And that's okay. Let me ask you about uh, AI. There's been a lot talked about with respect to AI. Depending on who you ask, AI is a complete game changer when it comes to everything from space exploration to medical diagnostic tests, or AI is going to bring about the inevitable end of human civilization, and it's just a matter of time before we see a Terminator 2-style judgment day. Where do you come down on the AI issue? You. Greatest thing to ever happen to civilization or the worst? Um, I'd love to answer that question, but you're actually uh, roboting out and the qual quality has dropped really uh, precipitously. <laughs> can you, can you, I think the AI overlords are trying to intervene so that they don't get this information out. <laughs> uh, fair enough. That's the uh, the uh, the scientific equivalent of pleading the fifth, I suppose. We'll we'll uh, we'll give you a break on that one. Um, so, but honestly, when it comes to AI, you don't have a you don't have a take that um, that that keeps you. Uh, oh, of course, I have a take. Everyone has a take. My if you're asking if AI uh, is angels or demons, 
my answer is AI is mundane. I think it is not going to be the savior of humanity, and it is not going to usher in an age of wonders. I also don't think that AI is going to learn how to build laser ray guns and start murdering all the humans. Uh, AI is a tool. It's a very complex and nuanced tool. It's a tool we honestly barely understand. Uh, we don't even understand our own human consciousness, and so imbuing an art, uh, you know, a digital circuitry and software with consciousness seems like a pretty tall order, considering we don't even understand the fundamental concepts in the first place. And yet. The AI tools that we are developing do seem to have their uses, do seem to have their applications. We will explore as a society what those applications are. We will find the acceptable boundaries of those, of those applications. Whether AI gets substantially more powerful in the future than it is today, Probably, but maybe not. There's no guarantee of technological progression. You know, the airplanes we have today are certainly more advanced than the airplanes of 100 years ago, but not exponentially better than the airplanes of 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the AI 100 years from now may be much, much better than the AI today, but not necessarily amazingly better. You mentioned the James Webb uh, Space Telescope and the things that, you know, caused that project to be delayed. We've seen some pretty incredible images from the James Webb Space Telescope since it's been out there. In your view, what is the most impressive thing we've seen from James Webb or the most impressive thing we've learned from James Webb, to put it more broadly? Right. I'm going to uh, put my biases out front uh, so I can qualify this sure. answer appropriately. I'm a theoretical cosmologist. I like to study the history and evolution of the universe itself, the story of the Big Bang right. written in the arrangement of galaxies in our universe. And so to me personally, the most interesting results from the James Webb are the results concerning cosmology. Uh, if you had an, an exobiologist or an exoplanet hunter on this show, I'm sure they would say the exoplanet discoveries that the James Webb has made. Uh, but for me, it's all about the early universe and what the James Webb is revealing and the problems it's revealing. We've been, we've suspected for quite some time that our understanding of the very early universe, and by very early, I mean the first few hundred million years. This is the dawn of the first stars, the emergence of the first galaxies, and so on. We've known that our understanding of this has been limited uh, and flawed and probably broken. And the James Webb is showing very clearly that we simply do not understand how the first stars and galaxies and black holes emerged on the cosmic scene. And that's very exciting to me because that's an opportunity to learn something new. Mm. Do, do you buy the Big Bang Theory? Oh, I, I don't know. I don't just buy it. I sell it. Mm. <laughs> um, there are a lot of Big Bang skeptics out there, you're aware, and not just people that are uh, science uh, skeptics in general. There are a lot of people in the scientific community that have a difficult time um, buying that the, the Big Bang theory exists, that this, uh, this that describes how the universe expanded from an initial state of high density and temperature to what we have now. What do you say to the Big Bang skeptics? 
Oh, yeah. So the, I, I will address the vast majority of scientists, especially physicists, especially astronomers, especially cosmologists, um, do believe, based on the evidence, that the Big Bang story is largely true. And the Big Bang story is very simple, which is a long time ago, our universe was smaller and hotter and denser. Since then, it, it has expanded and cooled and thinned out. Voila. That's the Big Bang story. And... To anyone who doesn't believe the Big Bang story, fine. Uh, you know, no theory is forced upon anybody. What we do have is a, is a collection of evidence. We have independent, multiple independent lines of evidence. And if you want to come up with your own theory of the history of the universe, great. No one's stopping you. Do it. But... If you're going to play the game, you have to follow the rules. And the rules are that you have to agree with observations, that you have to agree with evidence. And so if you can come up with a compelling theory of the history of the universe that agrees with all pieces of evidence, and I mean all of them, you can't leave any, any out, that's cheating. If you come up with that theory that agrees with all pieces of evidence and has proposals for how we can distinguish this new theory versus the Big Bang and tell them apart observationally, empirically, and do the whole science thing, then then bring it on. Let's see you at the next conference. Let's read your paper. I'll be applauding when you get your Nobel Prize. No one's stopping you. If people are just... The truth is, yeah. Go, you know, I was just going to remind folks, uh, we're talking with Paul Sutter. Uh, you could check out his uh, forthcoming book, uh, Rescuing Science, Restoring Trust in an Age of Doubt. It's available for pre-order. You can go to pmsutter.com. Also available for pre-order in places like Amazon. Paul, almost out of time. Two final questions I want to ask you before we uh, before we let you go. One, uh, you're uh, as professional a spaceman as, we, as we've spoken to in quite some time, at least in the scientific realm. In your opinion, what is the most realistic movie about space? <laughs> the most realistic movie I've watched about space has to be The Martian. The Martian. Okay, I like it. I like yeah, it with that's, Ma that's Matt Damon. That's a good one. All right. Um, this may, might sound a little odd, but I'm betting you have a good answer to this because people in every field, law enforcement, uh, crime, uh, the legal profession, radio, you name it, they all have jokes about their profession. Can you share a cosmic joke that always gets a laugh during your scientific communications endeavors? And obviously bonus points if it involves a black hole or a knock-knock joke. All right. It won't be a knock-knock joke. It won't be. A, 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 uh, but thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this wonderful pun. People often confuse my field cosmology with cosmetology. <laughs> Uh, but I simply tell them that cosmology is studying the makeup of the universe. <laughs> okay, I like it. Whereas cosmetology is simply studying makeup. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dr. Paul Sutter, if you like more of what you, uh, if you want to hear more of what you heard today, you could check out the Ask a Spaceman podcast. You could also just go to pmsutter.com. Dr. Sutter, I enjoyed this very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. 
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 